0: The late winter is a special time for San Francisco's Chinatown because of the Lunar New Year. If
1: you're in the city during this time, there's a really unique energy. You'll hear firecrackers, there are street fairs, you can get delicious food like steamed whole fish, chewy tangyuan, and longevity noodles. And of course, there's a massive parade. It's one of the largest Chinese New Year celebrations in the entire world. But this year, the atmosphere is much more muted. Even before COVID-19 hit the Bay Area in 2020, Chinatown was experiencing the first impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, which turned this vibrant neighborhood into what feels like a ghost town.
0: Hey there, people. You are listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips.
1: And I'm Soleil Ho. Today, we're looking at San Francisco's Chinatown, a year on from the start of the coronavirus pandemic every community all across the globe has been affected by the virus. But as we know, not all experiences are the same.
0: We'll be hearing about some of the hurdles Chinatown has faced as a community, how people are overcoming those challenges and what the future might hold.
1: Yes, and in doing this, we're gonna be sharing the microphone with a lot of different people, community members, neighborhood leaders, chefs, business owners, and more. But first, we're gonna throw it to our producer, Taya Francesca Price.
2: This was the sound on Jackson Street back in late January of 2020. The sidewalk was covered in strips of red tissue paper, the air smelled sort of burnt because firecrackers and fireworks were going off constantly. It was about 10 o'clock in the evening, and you know, people were just walking around, casually leaving bars arm in arm, some, like myself, were carrying leftovers from dinner, and there was just an excitement around. You could see everyone was smiling, laughing, having a great time, because this was before coronavirus really hit. It was before our lives changed. Or at least that's what we thought. It turns out that right around this time, the first signs of the pandemic's impact were already creeping into the neighborhood.
3: Well, I think we were hearing from Chinatown as early as the end of January, early February, that Things were not right.
2: That's Janelle Bitker. She's a food enterprise reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. She's been covering the impact of the pandemic on restaurants since the
3: very beginning. If you walk down Grant Street, then it it was really striking. I remember walking down Grant Street on a weekend and going into Eastern Bakery for some crunch cake. And the owner was like, oh you're here, you're local, please come back, we need you. And and it was such a sad moment because I had never seen Chinatown look like that. It's always elbow to elbow with tourists and and people taking photos and people grocery shopping. And it was just stunning to see it empty out And, and not just from tourists, but it seemed like over time, people in San Francisco were also not going to Chinatown. The double whammy of that is January, February, especially February, is usually the busiest time in Chinatown. It lines up with Lunar New Year. It's when people fly in from all over the world to celebrate. Um, There's usually massive banquets for weeks and hundreds of people are getting together and spending lots of money. And the small businesses in Chinatown usually get 30 percent of their annual income just in that month-long Lunar New Year period. So to lose that and then have the pandemic really shut things down was pretty brutal.
2: San Francisco's Chinatown has almost a thousand ground floor retail spaces. It's a big gateway for immigrants coming to the Bay Area because there are a lot of starter jobs, which makes it a good place to slide into the American economy. That said, it's also important to keep in mind that this is one of the densest residential neighborhoods outside of Chinatown in New York. Roughly 14 to 18,000 people live in about a 24-block radius, and nearly 60% of the housing units are single-room occupancy hotels, or SROs. It's a bustling neighborhood, and this is just a snapshot of the number of people within the community, but on top of that, Thousands of tourists from all around the world visit this part of the city every year. And food, in particular, is a really big part of the draw.
4: You know, the busiest streets in Chinatown are the markets.
2: That's Brandon Ju, chef and owner of the restaurant Mr. Jew's in Chinatown.
4: And usually it's, you know, these huge, huge piles of uh, produce that has, you know, just been dropped off. And it's still like in the boxes that they they came in and there's people going through and trying to search for the very best thing they have. I mean, I always felt like, you know, that was a real big part of kind of feeling like luxurious in a way.
2: Ju is a San Francisco native. He actually lives in the house that was his grandparents. And he's a trained chef. His restaurant gained a ton of attention when it first opened in 2016 for its take on Cantonese American cuisine.
4: I mean, I'm pretty much can guarantee, like if anyone went to Chinatown right now, that there would be an ingredient that they have never seen and might not know how to use. And I think that part of it is like really, it's really intriguing because there's so, you know, your curiosity can really be, you know, sparked from, from all of the things that are that are in Chinatown. I feel really lucky because I, I have, there's, I've been getting so much influence from being just in Chinatown the history, even the even like what's going on now, there, there's so much going on that I think there's a built-in energy to, to the neighborhood. Uh,
2: Jew took like, three years to transform uh, his restaurant uh, space, which overlooks uh, Grant, uh, Grant and Avenue. And it used to be the Four Seas restaurant for 50 years, a banquet hall. And these uh, venues are a big part of the community's history uh, because it's where meetings, uh, events, uh, and weddings uh, all took
4: place. When I went upstairs and I saw this huge open banquet room, I started to realize like I had been there before. You know, I wanted to have a restaurant in Chinatown, but I, I think initially I was really only looking for a space around 2,500 square feet. And to put that in context, that is only a quarter of the size of what Mr. Jew's is at this point. What I had remembered walking upstairs was that my uncle got married there. We had red egg ginger parties there and when I remembered like those like those events I remember it being like packed and and really fun and festive and I I remember that it could be that and it was that and that I had a growing sense that it was actually something that could be relived again
2: The time spent fundraising to bring his vision for the restaurant to life really paid off. Once Mr. Juice opened and momentum for the restaurant grew, Ju eventually opened Moongate Lounge, a lounge and event space right above the restaurant.
4: We had just kind of started to really kind of get the two kind of working together. There's, you know, the restaurant downstairs, and then there was this lounge and event space upstairs. And, you know, by the time the pandemic hit, we were you know, 60 employees, um, you know, two floors of, of operation. Um,
2: Gosh, what timing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, know.
4: I know. I
2: mean, the one question that I had was, you know, how business changed when, you know, the onset of the pandemic was. I imagine sort of like the food traditions of, of, like you said, going to the market and, and getting ingredients and just sort of that whole network probably was tossed up into the air. So so. What was that
4: like? I I think when I was kind of assessing like, you know, really what our mentality was last year during during Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year, really was like this feeling like it was not gonna last very long and that we would be maybe rolling back into a normal life. And I think I you know, we can go back to just you know, our are, are politicians at the highest level, like Trump, just not acknowledging the seriousness of, of the pandemic. Many call it a virus, which it is. Many call it a flu. What difference? So how could we even think that it would be as serious as, as we should have taken it? Um, You know, we were a little buffered from some of the early effects of the pandemic because we had a reservation system. We had already been booked up for two months. So the way that we saw those being affected is as we got closer to that shutdown, day by day, week by week, we would be getting more cancellations. It's really hard to really know what was being affected in the form of, you know, xenophobia versus tourism, I want to also acknowledge that there's this real like slowdown of tourism. And I think also that the tech companies, they were telling all of their workers to stay home and to work remotely. Those two things were happening at the same time as really also this xenophobia. As we got closer to that shutdown, you actually realize there is no more foot traffic. There is no one to fulfill those cancellations and more cancellations were happening because either people were not comfortable because of what they were hearing about the pandemic or because they were not comfortable coming to Chinatown.
2: As coronavirus spread around the world, so did misinformation. It triggered reactions of fear and hate towards people of Asian descent. Paranoia and misconceptions about how the virus was spreading led to reduced business and this coincided with reports of verbal and physical attacks. In many ways, this behavior was stoked by leaders who repeatedly used anti-Chinese rhetoric as a way to divert questions about how the pandemic was being handled.
5: ...every day.
4: Well, they're losing their lives everywhere in the world, and maybe that's a question you should ask China. Don't ask me, ask China that question, okay? When you ask them that question, you may get a very unusual answer. Especially because of what Trump was continuing to say even, you know, from the beginning to the very end, he just continued to really point out China, China as Chinese. Opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. It really affected the neighborhood. You know, that part of it makes me angry because it's it's like that that part was added on top of the difficulty of everything that, that the pandemic has really proved to affect. I, it became more clear to me that I had to become more of an advocate for Chinatown, and and that our voice needed to be um, really heard. And I think it continues to be a real question mark of what are, are the lingering repercussions of that rhetoric that was being just continued to be finger pointed to Chinese people.
0: This isn't by any stretch of the imagination. The first time Chinatown as a community has been the subject of xenophobia. In fact, its very existence is inextricably linked with the history of Sinophobia in this country. I mean, we're talking about a really historic neighborhood, you know, like Chinatown is what? Nearly as old as San Francisco, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, the first Chinese immigrants who arrived back in 1848 at the start of the gold rush settled around what is now Grant Avenue, the single location where it was legal for Chinese people to actually live. So for a long time, it was seen by the government and the white gentry as what Obi-Wan Kenobi would describe in Star Wars as a hive of scum and villainy. (laughs) I know it's very screwed up. So the government mostly tolerated it in exchange for cheap labor in the mines, just in factories, railroads, that sort of thing. The anti-immigrant sentiment got so bad that it resulted in multiple laws restricting the movement of Chinese people here, including a straight up Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned Chinese immigration to the U.S. from 1882
6: to 1943. I mean, Chinatown um, is resilient, you
0: know. That's Malcolm Young, the executive director at the Chinatown Community Development Center or the CCDC. The
1: CCDC was founded in 1977 and came out of an activist movement trying to ensure that Chinatown would remain an immigrant gateway.
0: He says Chinatown has been resilient since the beginning when the community was under constant attack.
6: You know, for for the community to have survived that, uh, I think, is, is fairly amazing. The 1906 earthquake when uh, our city fathers and I... White fathers, um, you know, tried to move Chinatown uh, out to the mud flats in the southeast uh, in order to take advantage of the incredible, um, you know, proximity of the real estate in Chinatown. Uh, you know, and then of course, um, uh, World War II, the '60s era redevelopment area and downtown expansion. You know, Chinatown survived that. We made it through the the tech boom when real estate pressures were happening. And I think the common thread. Uh, throughout all of that uh has has been i think genuine community leadership um in the 1800s 1900s you know up until the 60s um you know the family associations and the regional associations the role that they played in in keeping Chinatown Chinatown was completely amazing stellar
1: i think there's a an impulse to think of activism especially you know the civil rights activism stuff being part of history but really it extends to this present day and there is actually a really timely angle with all of this community organization
0: yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, throughout the pandemic, there's been like a concern about preserving these neighborhoods, but on a very human element, like looking back at what you mentioned with the timeliness of this all, we're also having discussions about uh crimes that are happening in these neighborhoods against Asian residents. And it's complicated. You know, there have been some high profile things that have been caught on video, whether it's, you know, an individual being shoved to the ground, someone breaking into a you know, stealing things out of a store. And, you know, it It does highlight the concern that exists within these neighborhoods. And there's a lot of dialogue about how this is happening, why it's happening, who the perpetrators are, you know, anti-Asian racism, anti-Black racism. It's just a really big conversation. But at its core, it goes back to the preservation of a neighborhood And it even gets more granular than that and focuses on the individual lives and the experiences that they're having there. So there's like a whole timeliness to this discussion.
1: Right. It's a renewed conversation about how to keep the neighborhoods, including San Francisco and Oakland's Chinatowns, safe spaces for Asian Americans in this region. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after a quick break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. You're listening to the Extra Spicy podcast, and we're back with more on how Chinatown is facing the pandemic. Here's producer Taya Francesca Price.
2: When the coronavirus pandemic led to a shelter-in-place order in March, restaurants in San Francisco pivoted quickly. They turned to technology, hopping on food delivery apps, offering takeout and creating meal kits. But as Malcolm Young of the Chinatown Community Development Center pointed out, for businesses in Chinatown, especially small, monolingual places, adapting was trickier.
6: The, the Chinatown restaurants in particular were really not designed, you know, to work with the, the economy that San Francisco has transformed into. And I think restaurants were starting to then be in a situation where they had to make some difficult decisions.
2: Chelsea Hung is the owner of Washington Bakery and Restaurant, which her parents opened when they immigrated to San Francisco. Next month is actually the restaurant's 25th year anniversary. But when the pandemic began... Hung said that
5: their business had to make some really tough calls. So we actually decided to close for about a month just trying to navigate um, what what our next steps are. We weren't sure how serious the whole situation was and we wanted our team to be safe. So yeah, we had to make the hard decision of letting go of pretty practically most of our team and we closed and kind of waited around and we decided to open um, for takeout but it just wasn't enough Um, without um, a whole month of income and just so much uncertainty it, it was just really really difficult so
2: back in late march of 2020 malcolm young and the ccdc worked to provide meals for people living in single room occupancy situations by developing a program called Feed and Fuel,
6: we started planning for it, you know, in late March, early April, and then launched it in mid-April. So, um, you know, we kind of got to work really fast after the pandemic uh, started. Um, you know, back then, our our primary concern uh, was spread in SROs. We weren't quite sure, you know, about what you know, the deal with the virus is, but we knew that, you know, kind of communal kitchen use, communal um, bathroom use was going to be problematic. So, um, you know, the first feed and fuel iteration really was focused on this idea of trying to um, provide meals to SRO residents uh, as opposed to groceries to, to get them out of the kitchens as much as possible. Um, to do that, um, we um, partnered with just a number of different folks. Um, we partnered with uh, SF New Deal, uh, who we're partnering with again now. We partnered with uh, Self-Help for the Elderly um, in their meal delivery program. Uh, And then we also directly partnered with uh, 34 restaurants in Chinatown um, to create a voucher system uh, whereby SRO residents could come and and essentially use these vouchers at the restaurants to to basically get takeout meals so that they didn't have to use the communal kitchens.
2: And back at Washington Bakery, Chelsea Hung said programs like
5: this really helped her restaurants stay afloat. We were able to apply for some programs. So we partnered up with one of uh, the meal programs, SF New Deal which gave us more consistent revenue as well as help of seniors with food insecurities. So we provide breakfast, lunch, and dinner and deliver to the seniors that are participating in the program.
2: The first iteration of this feed and fuel program stopped back in July due to a number of factors, but the primary one was a lack of funding. However, at the same time, outdoor dining was picking up and people were going back to work. So it really did seem like a good time to pause. But like Malcolm Young pointed out, everyone was afraid of a COVID COVID surge.
6: surge. And and sure enough, in the fall, the surge hit. Uh, For the first time, we were starting to see steadily increasing numbers in Chinatown, uh, particularly in SROs, which was really worrisome. And then you know, on top of that, uh, outdoor dining shut down, and restaurants were then really starting to um, indicate that they were going to fail. The canary in the coal mine was was really when Far East announced that they were going to close um, by the end of last year. That was a, a pretty devastating announcement, and and would be a devastating blow if that if if we can't keep them open. Frankly,
2: Far East Cafe is one of Chinatown's oldest restaurants. It's a hundred years old, and it's one of just two remaining banquet halls in the neighborhood. So in early December. A coalition of Chinatown organizations joined together to identify what was needed to really save this community. Later that month, relaunching Feed and Fuel was prioritized. Malcolm Young said that having SF New Deal, a nonprofit organization, step up to run the second iteration of the program really was the catalyst to getting everything going.
6: You know, we got an immediate $500,000 commitment from the Human Services Agency, Shreem McSpadden, you know, with uh, with kind of the mayor's, you know, nudge. Uh, We got a a commitment to SF New Deal to kind of start the program.
2: Then, the Board of Supervisors approved $1.9 million in aid to Chinatown restaurants, a measure introduced by District 3, Supervisor Aaron Peskin.
4: Yeah, you, let, let's, let's be clear. Everybody needs
0: help. Interestingly enough, as lowest transmission rates in the city, they have become the model neighborhood in the densest community. Um, but there are, are a lot of people who are hungry.
2: On top of the half a million from the Human Services Agency and the 1.9 million from the Board of Supervisors, the CCDC committed an additional $100,000 to the relief program, bringing funds up to $2.5 million. Young says they're not stopping there.
6: And we're now trying to raise an additional $1 million dollars from foundations and private funds to bring the total program budget up to three um, and a half million. And, um, you know, we got an immediate um, uh, contribution from CrankStart Foundation of $500,000. So that was a huge boost. And, um, you know, we are now uh, well on our way to, um, you know, relaunching and getting the program rolling. And SF New Deal has just been amazing to work with.
2: Chelsea Hung said that when San Francisco allowed outdoor dining again, their restaurant invested in an outdoor platform.
5: So that helped a little bit. You know, we also just had to become more innovative and adapt to the times, offering meal kit, just creating different ways to provide more convenience to people during this time. So it, it's just been a really emotional roller coaster to say the least, um, but we've definitely grown and adapt, and we've tried so many different things. Now, you know, things are starting to pick back up. Uh, we've opened our outdoor dining again. Um, we're in a couple other meal programs. Um, We were able to hire more of our employees back. So I think things are starting to be better. (laughs) But there's still a lot of uncertainty still, unfortunately.
2: Hung grew up in Chinatown. Her parents have been in the restaurant industry for over 30 years. But when they wanted to retire and sell the restaurant, she was living in New York, working at a tech job.
5: A comfortable nine to five. Um, And when I heard the news, it kind of made me think again about if I was ready to just see our family business, um, you know, gone. Um, So I made the decision to actually come back and take it over. As of next month, it's actually our 25th year anniversary for Washington Bakery and Restaurant. Um, It's just funny because I worked at tech companies that helped entrepreneurs and you know I became one myself so I kind of feel like I came full circle. Um, The restaurant just has a really deep place in my heart and so does the community. I just wasn't ready to let it go yet. Um, I saw a lot of potential and opportunity there and I still wanted to be a part of that community. So
2: what does the future of Chinatown look like especially after everything that's happened in 2020? Here's Malcolm Young.
6: I will say that, you know, one of the bright spots that I've seen in this pandemic is the the way in which our young people have stepped up and in. What we've seen from our youth team, you know, which is amazing, is th- this process whereby um, a lot of the high school youth who've been participating in the program are, are beginning to sort of serve as resources for a lot of our seniors by teaching them, um, you know, how to use Zoom, how to you know, basically exist in this online world um, to the point where um, we've begun to really see uh, a lot of our um, grassroots organizations begin to, to meet again, but doing it virtually. On the other hand, they're also um, kind of pivoting on their own projects uh one of the programs that we normally do in in regular uh times is uh, the the youth team actually designs their own tours of Chinatown where they they do it from the framework of their experience and how it connects to Chinatown and and what they've done and and this is the thing i think that's blown me away and in, in so many like just they've created a minecraft version of Chinatown and they're now launching a minecraft uh online tour um, to be able to continue this activity. And I'm, I'm just, you know, and I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm like, wow, if this is our future leadership. I think we're going to be pretty good. It, it's, it's really exciting.
2: While this forced hiatus has been a time for projects and innovation, it's also been a time for reevaluations. You see, nobody has escaped the hardships of this pandemic. Brandon Jew from Mr. Jew's actually had to furlough all of his hourly staff back in December when outdoor dining shut down.
4: I think that that restaurant that was, you know, 2019 is not the it's not the restaurant that I want to reopen. And I think this pandemic has really given me the opportunity to rethink what our priorities are and and like how to how to actually have a better restaurant inside and out for the future.
2: The pandemic has reframed priorities. It's demanded transformations and resiliency. But a year on from the start of the pandemic, despite all the hardships and all the unknowns of the future, Chu points to signs of hope.
4: Even, you know, going to and from Chinatown, the energy is starting to come back. The markets are are more full. The things that kind of give me indication that tourists still want to kind of like experience Chinatown is like, just from people asking me, hey, what do you, where do you eat around here? Or, like, can you point me in the direction of this or that? You know, it kind of makes me happy to, to like have to answer those because it gives me the sense that some of it is, is coming back. This year feels different because I feel like what we went through, I think I, I, think I feel finally optimistic. I might be becoming more superstitious, but you know, last year was year of the rat. I mean, it kind of proved to be a lot of the characteristics of a rat, which is to me like being scrappy, staying alive, doing anything to continue. And I think this year being the year of the Ox, you know, that that kind of consistent, reliable, head down kind of just workhorse kind of like, um, I kind of feel like thinking about that, having the new administration and I just feel like there's been a little bit of a focus of, of like not only like getting our restaurant back up and getting our employees back, but also, I think, an overall like sense of optimism for, for Chinatown.
1: While there's no Chinese New Year parade this year, the Year of the Ox is being celebrated with 11 life-size ox statues painted by artists who normally make the parade's floats. To see the sculpture's locations, go check out chineseparade.com ox on parade. That's all we have for today. Thank you to Taya Francesca Price for producing and editing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts.
0: And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.